Welcome to TrackCast, the official podcast of the Real Estate Council from deep in the heart of Dallas, Texas. I'm Bill San Antonio. Thanks for tuning in. We're back today with another CRE Executive Roundtable on the coronavirus pandemic's effect on the commercial real estate industry and overall economy here in DFW. We've held them every few weeks, essentially since the pandemic began. They're hosted by our chairman, Bill Cauley of Cauley Partners, and feature some of the biggest real estate executives and business leaders in the region. To start off our most recent talk, we've got a very special guest, the president and CEO of Parkland Hospital, Dr. Fred Cerise, who updates us on the hospital's infrastructure and occupancy rates and how treating the virus has evolved over the course of the pandemic. He's actually the first voice you'll hear when the conversation begins. We've also got updates on institutional investment from JLL's Andrew Levy and on the retail sector from the Real Estate Connection's Alan Shore. Ray Washburn of Charter Holdings also joins us later on in the conversation to talk about some of the issues affecting the restaurant industry. If you're joining us for the first time and you like what you hear, please subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app so you get all the latest episodes right to your mobile device. Be sure to follow Trek on social media as well. We've linked to all of our handles in the show notes. And now, here's our latest CRE Executive Roundtable right here on TrackCast. But what that does is it compresses the timeline of, um, of development. And so you, you are seeing uh, now those tests starting to be done in populations. And basically what they have to do is they've got to put it out and, and, and vaccinate a bunch of people and then, uh, <clears throat> and then do a uh, placebo to a bunch of others in the same population and let them mix in the population and see who's getting infected and who's not just to start to try to, you know, gauge some effectiveness of the vaccine. <clears throat> That's happening now. It's starting to happen now. And uh, so it's feasible that, by the beginning of the end of the year, early next year, you could have a vaccine that um, uh, that's considered safe and effective. And then it's going to take a while to distribute, though. And that's where you know a lot of things we I'm not clear, and a lot of people are not clear what those you know who gets who 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 are the priority populations? How does that get distributed? And that's going to take a while to um, uh, to do. But you know, I think. It's, it's feasible that could be happening early in um, early next year um, based on what I'm, you know, I'm not, I don't have any special knowledge other than sort of what I'm paying attention to and, and, and watching among the, the, the medical people talking about this. Um, <clears throat> I don't think, you know, the, uh, for things like school this year or anything like that, vaccines are going to be a relevant part of the decision-making. Um, do hospitals have a handle on this? <clears throat> Frank, are you on just a monitor? What's that? Um, hey, hey, Frank Mihalopoulos, do you want to mute your call? Um, we enjoy hearing the I, kids. But we're oh, I thought it was a question. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> so do hospitals have a handle on this? I, there, There is hospital capacity in Dallas. Um, uh, right, everybody's in Dallas area, North Texas. Is that right? Am I talking? So yes, everybody here is, is our Dallas. Yes. Okay. So how, there is capacity among the hospitals right now. If the the good news is our cases are definitely going down. Yeah, you know, we saw a um, we saw our peak at Parkland was on July fifteenth, 
and uh, we had 175 people in the hospital that day. Uh, today we have 94, and so it's almost cut in half. Uh, not quite, but uh, but there's been significant reduction over the past three weeks. Uh, and the other hospitals in North Texas are seeing a similar trend, not as dramatic number reduction, but um, we track North hospital, North Texas hospitalizations, almost 1,700 uh, on July 15th, and about 1,200, 1,250 uh, today. So there is a definite reduction in the number. And we're seeing the same thing on positivity rate of testing, It's still um, closer, it's still above 10%, which is higher than we want it to be, but it's around 14, 16% or so. So the positivity rate of testing is coming down. People in the hospital, um, those numbers are reducing. And that's happening. I, you know, most people are convinced that's because we got serious about masking um, uh, late June. And those, you know, when you make an intervention like that in the population, it's going to take about a month to show up in your hospitalizations in your numbers and that's pretty much what we saw about a month later we saw the the numbers going down and they've been going down pretty consistently since that time and so hospitals today have capacity we we we've created capacity up to a thousand beds at parkland we're running about 700 to 800 people in uh, beds and if we had to surge you know we could add another five six hundred beds in the space that we have the 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 challenge for Parkland and for other places is going to be staffing because as you can imagine, people are running essentially their same business and an additional ICU because that's you know, the, the, the um, COVID people in the hospital tend to be critically ill. And so everybody's competing now for ICU nurses, critical staff, uh, critical care staff. And that's the, um, that's the challenge right now. We're using people from out of town, travelers and, you know, temp workers and stuff to try to support, while we uh, while we get through it until the numbers come down, um, and um, but that's the critical piece right now. But hospitals have capacity, um, and we're not at a critical um, you know uh, load point at all right now. And your third question was what I think where what should we be doing? How can you live your life? Yeah, how should we be living? You know. Yeah, I you know I'll tell you this is what I've noticed. Just my observation. Um, Sometimes on, on a Sunday morning, Sunday afternoon, I'll, I'll ride my bike out to um, the Santa Fe Trail. I go through Deep Ellum. And, you know, a month and a half ago, I, on a Sunday afternoon, I ride through and there were crowds. Nobody was in a mask. They were waiting in line for the bars. And uh, this is on, a, you know, a Sunday afternoon, Sunday evening. And, um, and then last weekend when I did, you didn't see any of that. And I think that is... That's the difference between what we're seeing in transmission right now. Um, the, if people if, if people just were serious about a mask, you know, we're all sitting in our office by ourselves, so we should we don't need a mask. But um, if people were serious about a mask, these the the, the the transmission rate would would go way down and stay way down. I've been I go to work every day every day since uh, you know I go into the office. I'm, I'm in the hospital, and and you know we're in a mask and we don't have big numbers getting infected at work. Um, you know, we've, we've, we've had a few small outbreaks, mainly around a break room where people aren't masked. But, um, but that's the key, keeping it, keeping a distance, good hand hygiene, simple things, and, and 
but the big one is wearing a mask when you're around people. And and remember, what do you know about the, the infection? This virus is transmitted when you talk, you 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 spew respiratory you know, droplets. That's where the virus is, and that's how people get infected. So when you wear a mask, you're protecting everyone around you. It's not necessarily a thing of you know I I don't I'm not worried about getting sick, and so I'm not going to wear a mask. You're wearing the mask more so to protect people around you and to protect yourself. And have we figured out how to more quickly treat a sick person? Like, so if uh, I get COVID today, can you get me feeling better quicker than you could have in March? No. Um, no. Probably not. You know, if you're, if you're pretty sick, um, we can reduce the time in hospital. You spend in the hospital by a, a couple of days. Um, uh, with you know, there's a drug now, remdesivir. That's an antiviral drug that has uh, proven to be effective at reducing hospital stay for um, uh, for people with COVID. Gets close to achieving uh, statistical significance on mortality, uh, but not quite there. Um, and that's for people who are sick enough to be in the hospital, not on a ventilator yet pretty sick um but for most people most people have have uh, you know still don't have a, a lot in the way of symptoms or their symptoms are pretty mild if you look at all of the tests that we do and all the positives that we've had in our mortality our mortality is around somewhere between one and two percent um uh as a country uh, i mean in the world about three percent or so so you know most people are going to do fine but there are things that we learned in the hospital of treating people. So remdesivir is one, putting people on their stomach and ventilating them, um, using steroids. There's some things that we've, we've learned for critically ill people that, um, uh, that look to be effective, but there's not a cure. And, uh, and the things that we find are effective generally may reduce the time period that people are sick. You know, that's, that's the kind of the benefit. And and you said, uh, and then I'll I'll turn it over to the group to ask questions. One, I've got one last one. Is um, you think this is going to be here for a while? What's your What's your view on that? And how long we're going to be dealing with this? Yeah, you know, we we thought maybe you know we in the uh, spring we'd have this peak and it would cool off, and then maybe we'd have something that comes back in the fall. We really didn't see that. You know, we kind of plateaued in uh, May. Um, after Memorial Day, things picked up, and uh, so we never did this little peak and dip and fall like the 1918 pandemic uh, pattern, where you had this little peak in the uh, spring, went quiet, and in the fall it really took off. Um, weather has not seemed to have an impact on this. You know, it got warm and and the virus is spreading. <clears throat> so, kind of the seasonal factor it doesn't look like that was a that was a big player at all. Uh, we're worried about flu, and when flu comes on top of COVID, because that make people sicker. And so, you know, it's going to be a big emphasis on getting your flu shot, so that uh, we can protect people from the the flu. And it's also uh, very possible that if we're strict about masking, you could you could see a, a very mild flu season because flu is transmitted the same way. And so, but we've never gone through flu season with everyone in a mask before. Um, but um, uh, but really, until you have a, a vaccine that's effective or you get what we call herd immunity, where a significant portion of the population gets infected, we're nowhere close to that, um, you know, you can expect it to sort of just, you know, coexist with us.
So, so do you think the mask is like going to be a, a staple in our, and you know, when I get up in the morning, I, I think it's really kind of hurting my look. I, I put a really nice sport coat on and a, a shirt and, and it, it just, it, it doesn't feel like I, I'm looking my best when I've got my mask on. Is there a way to get rid of that in the future or is this going to be part of our life from now on? You know, I, I, like I said, you, we may get to a point, um, uh, first off, you know, hope we can hope about a vaccine coming early in the year. I think for the rest of the year, you know, mask is going to be part of your wardrobe, unfortunately. Um, and uh, and then we have to see how we do with a uh, with a vaccine. So there's no other reason why the virus would just would just go away. You know, what we're seeing is it's going away. It's related to the actions that we've taken. In right. the areas where it's you know it's taken off, it, it, you can you can see. You know, it, it's it's related to people gathering, getting close together without masks on. Okay, I want to turn it over to the group. Does anybody have any questions that that I haven't asked that they'd like to ask, Fred? Yeah, it, I'd like to ask one, and I probably shouldn't ask it because I don't really want to know the answer. I don't think. But a, <laughs> at a restaurant, and B, do you think the seventy-five, the governor has us at fifty percent now? What, what what would you feel if we took it up to seventy five percent? Yeah, you don't want that. You don't want that answer. Loaded question. Yeah, yeah, you know it's it's um, the so the six feet apart is a real thing. You know that's uh, people have done studies and seen how far, and and that's kind of under normal talking circumstances. Um, how far you can you know you generally transmit. Um, and, um, obviously if people are yelling or singing or, you know, that it, it's further, but, um, but the six feet is a real thing. And the, the closer you have people together, uh, the more, uh, uh, likely you are to spread. And so in a restaurant where people can't wear a mask and if you're, if you're close together, that's, those are going to be risk factors, you know, particularly inside where the, the, the circulation is is such that uh, that it will linger, the virus will linger. So, I, I don't, you know, I don't see a lot of loosening up uh, coming soon on that. Although I tell you, if you look, so if you look at the the the, the trends, I think you'd want to see a lot less community transmission um, uh, before people start loosening up. And I, I don't know when things like bars, which just are you know, the design is to crowd into you know. Um, uh, to be in those situations, but um, but I, you know the things that you want to watch for is uh, you know what's the positivity rate? You know we're still testing over ten percent positive in the community. You'd want to have that down closer to one percent. You know um, what are the absolute numbers? We're still six hundred or so a day in Dallas. You know you'd want that much lower than that, um, and so. I don't, I don't see that number coming down to where you can get back to business as usual anytime, um, anytime in the near future. For at 50% now, you know, it, it really depends on how, how, how much you can space people out. Um, thank you again for your time this morning. I got a quick question for you on mutation to have you educate us on it. Before you do that, I don't know if you can see your screen. It's kind of hard to see, but in one box, 
It looks like we have two real estate titans. It looks like it's Craig Hall and Lucy. And there's a rule in real estate that if you're in the room, you're in the deal. So I'd like you to know you are now formally in a real estate deal and the paperwork will be forthcoming from Craig and Lucy to you along with everybody else. Um, <laughs> here's my question for you. Um, we hear a lot about strains mutating and what that means and putting an anecdote, uh, um, a vaccine in place. Can you walk us through the, the, the mutation discussion and what that means, if it's real or secondary? You know, I, I'll, I'll preface this by saying I'm not, uh, so I practiced for a long time, but, uh, but I haven't done it in, in about 10 years. And so I'm not a mutation expert, but, um, um, uh, but the, um, what I read and see about this and the development of the vaccine is, you know, uh, that targets this spike protein on the virus is that that's a pretty stable piece of the, the virus that it's targeting. And so, um, uh, and so I have, I have not heard of the, of the concerns like, you know, every, it may be every year you do a flu, uh, you know, you do a, a different flu. They test the flu to see what strain you've got out there in, in flu that's coming through. Um, so, um, so it is a, it is a concern, but I, I haven't, um, uh, heard at least at this point in time in the, in the vaccine development and what they're targeting on this virus that uh, you know that 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 that's something that would inhibit the ability to form a vaccine right now, but like like I said, I I preface that by saying that's me reading you know uh, a few scientific articles and the and then the lay press. Hey Fred, um, I, I'm I'm curious, and uh, my question is, you know, is it's not like the virus is really going away, but it's really about to managing it in terms of the effect it can, it can overwhelm hospitals, but it's got to work its way through the herd. Is that correct? Generally speaking, it's going to work its way through the herd or you'll get a vaccine and that, you know, you can protect against or a treatment and you can cure it. Right. Which, you know, how long we've been dealing with the common cold and we don't, we don't, you know, we have a lot of remedies, for the symptoms, but we don't have treatment for the cold itself. Yeah. Okay. Well, I, I guess you know my concern is is just uh, is really, I, you know, I know uh, I feel like we're taking one route, which is, you know, just trying to slow its process through the herd, but it's taking a huge toll on the on the world and on on you know on our economies. And yeah. That I wish there was more conversation about how we could, you know, how we could, you know, Yeah, I lost you there, but I think I've got the uh the gist of your question. The um uh, you know, diff the challenges with um with 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 what you're describing is, you're right. If you have to work its way through the population, then um, then you just bite the bullet and say, you know, people are going to are going to get it. We'll develop herd immunity and you know not be so disruptive on the economy. Um, it, what we've tried to do with the mitigation factors is try to get it to a manageable level because there is a difference between everybody getting it at once 
and then overwhelming the healthcare system where, you know, people that could survive won't survive because <laughs> they couldn't get the supportive treatment they need. They couldn't get on a ventilator and that sort of stuff. So you try to kind of tamp it down to be able to not overwhelm the, um, the healthcare system. And I think that's been some of the strategies in terms of how do you loosen up the economy? How do you like loosen up some of the restrictions is the cases are down, you've got more capacity. Can you loosen up a little bit? And then the, the cases come up a little bit and then you tamp down. And that's been one of the, the thoughts on how you met, how, how you're going to manage it because if it's going to, if it's going to be there, um, the, the, the approach of just sort of letting it, letting it go and work its way through the population, what will happen is you've got a lot of people who, who you, you could save that you won't be able to. And listen, when we get, you know, you, like look what's going on down in South Texas and, in, in, you know, in McAllen and, and those areas where they're just overwhelmed. Um, you talk to the people that were in it in, in New York and I've talked to some people there. You know, that's what you don't want to get to is where so many people are sick at the same time that you can't get treatment. Um, but I hear what you're saying. You know, I think we're putting our, uh, you know, um, our, our, the, our hopes in one is a vaccine, but two is if you mask and things come down, perhaps you could loosen things up a little bit more. And as long as everybody's masking, maybe you can open the restaurants, you know, and, uh, and if people are strict about masking everywhere else, uh, then maybe that part works. And so you kind of loosen things up. Um, but the mask, I think, is, is, a, is a key piece. And if we kept that in place, then you'd be able to have a lot of other freedoms. And last question, Fred, is, um, so you're saying in general right now, the mortality looks to be 1% to 2%? That's, uh, that's right. So there's 98, 99%, you know, success rate in getting through it if you have it. That's Yes. Thank you. Like I said, most people are going to get most people are going to get it and and either don't know they got it or have mild symptoms with it. You know, the the the, um, the tough ones are, you know, two percent of a big population. You know, um, or you know, ten percent that may end up in the ICU. That's it ends up being a big number if everybody gets it at once. Any other questions? Okay, I got one last one. You'd mentioned uh, mid-June intervention. Is is that when you're, are you talking about when we were you inferring to the second wave where we kind of backed up again? Yeah, you know, when things were picking up again and then uh, the governor and the, and the county judge said, wear your mask, you know, and, um, right. and the judge actually issued an order, I think on June 19th, to say, you know, businesses would, uh, that people that deal with the public are required to have a mask. Um, and, um, uh, and that was about a, a month before we started to see the decline in the, in the cases. And that time frame makes a lot of sense in terms of, you know, the time, the transmission period between when somebody gets infected and when they actually show up with, with, uh, are exposed and they show up with symptoms. And, um, so yeah, that's what I was referring to. Got it. Well, um, thank you. Uh, I know you're busy. We appreciate everything you do and what you're doing for all of us. Um, and I really appreciate you taking the time. Well, I appreciate you guys taking the time. And listen, I, I know it's hard. You're trying to do business. And uh, you know, I, the, those of us on the medical side can say, this is what you do to reduce transmission. And you know, the, the, I, I tell people at the hospital, every decision we make right now 
it has a good piece and a bad piece. There's no, there's no just simple uh, decisions that work, you know, for work that works all around as a positive. Everything is, everything is a trade-off. And so, um, you know, uh, I appreciate what you guys are, are doing and hopefully, you know, can do that without having too many restrictions put on you so that you can, you, you can keep doing your business. So uh, thanks for taking some time this morning. Hey Fred, I, I, appreciate I wanted to say on, on you know on behalf of, of the business people is you know it, it isn't about the business. I mean it's it's about the it's about the folks that rely on the business for the money they need and, and, and that's really where our hearts are, you know, because you know, I I know people are getting laid off and you know, and some are losing jobs and some are reducing their you know salaries and 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 uh, it just leads it leads to other issues and, and I think we're just maybe closer to that. And that's a big part of what's, um, what's, what's driving, you know, my consciousness is, you know, how, how can we responsibly get people out there to, to take steps in their lives? Because, um, because it's a delicate balance. No, I get it. I get it. Wear the mask and, you know, if everybody's expected to do it and, and knows that it's not a, you know, it's not a sign of weakness or anything else, but, uh, but, you know, that'll let us get on with a lot of other stuff and it's proven to be helpful this past month. Thank you guys. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you being on, Fred. Thank you. Uh -huh. Bye. Okay, Andrew, that's gonna be a tough act to follow, buddy. Um, so um, my questions, Andrew, which I would like to cover and then let the group ask is, you know, is anything trading? I mean, I know industrials like and, and industrial and data centers are all fine, but I mean, is this a good time to sell an office building? I mean, what's, you know, multifamily uh, has the, I mean, you hear about all these people raising all this money to buy hotels and, and retail. I mean, what's reality? I mean, uh, it seems to me like there's a gap between what I'll sell a building for and what I'll buy a building for actually. I mean, if I'm a seller, I'll sell it at a number. If I'm a buyer, I want it at a lower number because I'm I'm pricing fear into or unknown into what I'm doing. Give us some guidance as to what reality is. Is is anything trading and um, you know anything with any risk? So I guess for starters, it's a little bit awkward because I thought I was supposed to talk about COVID. So <laughs> I kind of took that, so I'm a little bit <laughs> right now. Oh, you can if you want, but make that at the end so we can mute you. No, the, um, <laughs> look, I mean, it's going to be hard to tell, this is quite a group here, it's going to be hard to tell you guys anything that is just shocking or, or terribly novel, but the answer is yes. I mean, we have, you know, post the you know, stay-at-home order when obviously, you know, all, you were, all we were really closing was deals that were kind of already had the momentum, were already firm, were already under app. Um, you know, we had really a very brief period where kind of nothing happened. And then, you know, we've been tracking very precisely our firms, our capital market groups activity since the very beginning of COVID. And generally speaking, it never stopped. I mean, we were, the narrative, the national narrative was far more negative than what we were experiencing. So generally speaking, our, our, our kind of trailing four week rolling average, uh, JLL capital markets is closing between 30 and 40 deals a week and volume of anywhere from, you know, 750 million to a little over a billion. And that's been relatively consistent. So when you think about that, you know, that's, that's certainly well off of where we would have been 
a year ago. Call it 40%, 50%. Uh, but the market never stopped. And that, that's obviously the biggest difference between now and you know, the great, the great uh, financial crisis. Um, you know, not surprisingly, you know, the debt markets have remained more liquid than the sale markets, uh, but for, like you said, data centers and industrial. But, you know, if you look at if, if GLL's pipeline and closed deal pipeline is a good proxy for the market, which I think it is, about 50% of our business has been debt, and about 35% has been sale over that same period, with the, the balance being loan sale, private equity placements, et cetera. So it's not as far out of kilter as one might think. Um, from a, a property type standpoint, yeah, just not gonna stop From a property type standpoint, I'm, I'm not gonna talk too much about industrial uh, because I think everyone kind of knows the detail on that. Um, you know, office buildings, which is something that's near and dear to my heart. You know, office buildings are liquid on the lower risk side of the spectrum. You know, so there's probably nothing terribly surprising there. Um, what's interesting is we are setting records on the office side for cap rates and prices per square foot if you check the right box. So we are uh, went firm last week on a very core, uh, call it Austin area deal, 12-year credit lease. At, that's even a forward commitment to, you know, the five and a quarter cap. Uh, we're under contract on a deal on Legacy right now that's a 12 year credit lease, it's call it five and a half. Uh, in prices per square foot that are 450, 550, 650 a foot. So, you know, on the, on, the, on the low risk side of the spectrum, it's as good, and the pricing really hasn't changed, although obviously volume has. Um, on the uh, hospital or multi housing, very s similar story relative to pricing. So. To say it's pre-COVID pricing is an understatement. The good stuff has probably gotten a little bit better. Crazily, in the last week, our multi-housing team has set all-time Dallas records on price on prices per unit on both kind of commodity 80s, middle of the fairway value add, uh, call it 180,000 a unit, which is unheard of. And this is 1985 vintage, you know, value add. Similarly. We, we're closing, but haven't closed. We're firm on a new Class A suburban property that's going to be into the mid 200s per unit, and all of these are in kind of the you know, low four type cap range. So the multi housing volume, pricing, everything is, is strong. Really, the only exception probably being you know, the true, very expensive infill high rise Class A stuff had supply concerns that were affecting volume pre COVID. And that persisted, and that hasn't gone away. It hasn't gotten worse, but it hasn't gotten better. And then the older stuff, kind of 1970s era stuff, uh, it's doable, but much tougher, primarily because the, the debt just really isn't there for the heavy value add really across the board on the property. You know, retail, we are starting to see, I'm just kind of meandering here, Bill. Um, retail, uh, I'd say better than you would think, but it's probably about what you would think. Uh, we closed a grocery anchored retail deal last last week with a, uh, a good a good grocer, but not a top three grocer, and with very little lease term left. And it was a kind of a low second cast with, with a mark to market story. Um, if you can show up with a Trader Joe's, a Whole Foods, an HEB, you know, small amount of shop uh, shop space, and generally you know core location, et cetera, that stuff is still trading plus or minus where it would have traded before in like, you know, five or low fives. The caveat there is there's very little 
very little volume because very few sellers are testing the market. And that's the same for office buildings. If you're not dead center of the fairway, there's really no, no point in trying to pitch a tent in a sandstorm. Um, most people are taking that approach. Um, I guess the last piece you asked me to touch on is hospitality. Um, you know, that is as bad as you would think outside of the very few select markets. Um, and frankly, more markets that look more like Dallas than Boston or New York. You know, the, the liquidity and the, the office volume is very low. JLL's uh, in the market with three uh, hotels in Texas right now, uh, one in Austin, two in Dallas. And you know, there's, they're going to sell at heavy, heavily distressed levels. Um, our hotel note sales business is improving, but not for the, not for the right reason, obviously, because a lot of that stuff is going to go back. It hasn't gone back yet, but you know, I think you, you talk to our national hospitality group leaders, and they'll tell you that the second quarter was anemic, third quarter is going to be much better, um, but they, they do expect and see in their pipelines indications that fourth quarter we should see a, a market improvement, but still nothing remote close to where we were. The big box convention hotels, you know, there's just no, and you guys are all asking questions of the doctor there, but there's just no evidence to suggest that, that business is coming back anytime soon. It's certainly not in the next six months, so that's uh, our, our group feels is going to be significantly and severely impacted for a long time. Okay, I'd like to open it up to the group. Any questions of um, Andrew? You know, um, do you you have the Crescent out right now, right? Yes. Okay. Tons of activity. Big asset. Yeah. So the Crescent uh, kind of macro level is exactly what people don't want right now. So it's big. <laughs> elements to it. Um, it's got a relatively short wall wait up to lease term on the Crescent five years. So generally speaking, that's not what people want. But on right. The side. There's very little on the market, and I hope everybody in this call would concur. That's probably the most unique, you know, stickiest, you know, office building maybe in Texas, but certainly in Dallas. Other effective Lucy and Craig and a lot of other folks in this call that built unbelievable assets. Um, so the activity level has been, I mean, great. We have, we have people flying in. Uh, we've probably done by this point 15 to 20 square feet asset. By half of those involve some form of travel. Uh, bids are due next week, and you know the activity level is better than we would have expected. Haven't seen any offers yet, and nor would we expect it with offers due next week. Um, but you know it's going to be really interesting to see. I mean, it's a you know that that is in a lot of ways very very defensive. So if you're Brookfield, Blackstone, KKR, Wall Street, Angel Gordon, and you've got multiple billions of dollars to invest, and you're looking for Defensive, defensive assets and there's got to be an office allocation and you've got a corporate strategy that would appear to be kind of middle of the fairway. Um, right. So the cost of capital for a lot of those guys is obviously much higher. So they may not be, that likely won't be the, the highest offer. Okay, group questions? I figured John Gates would have a question. But... You might be the first guy I've seen wearing a tie in a while. I, I will say that. Andrew, I get to talk to you every week. I don't need to take other people's time. <laughs> okay, I'm going to let him go if nobody has a question. 
Thank you, Andrew. You're awesome. I appreciate you stepping up. Uh, um, um, sounds like kind of what we would expect, but uh, it's probably a little better than my perception as far as uh, that. Because, I mean, the thing about the Crescent is it's a quality asset. It's going to be really interesting to see if that trades at the expected numbers in this environment. Because, I mean, there's risk there in lease terms, but it's such a quality asset. But then the problem is you got to go down there and compete with Dardic, who's about to build a huge building next door. So that would make me nervous. But, uh, okay, Alan, um, it seems like the, uh, the uh, uh, people most affected, restaurants, retail, hotel. You know, give us your view. Where, where are we at? How's it going? I mean, uh, um, is it getting better? Is it worse than we think? We're, what's going on? Yeah, so <clears throat> if, you, um, if you remember the discussion we had, our last update on, on retail three, just, just three, little over three months ago, back in April, uh, you know, there was tremendous uncertainty. Stores were closing by the tens of thousands. Um, unemployment was, you know, I think 44 million unemployment claims at its peak. And, um, and the domino effect in the economy was tremendous. And yet what we saw was, you know, cooperation up and down the chain, tenants, landlords, owners, lenders, rent relief packages get negotiated, the government pumping tremendous trillions of dollars into the, uh, into the economy. Um, and so at that time, what we talked about was, okay, sort of hopeful that, you know, despite all the uncertainty, uh, you know, we would somehow control this, uh, you know, the surge, keep our hospital, our hospital uh, care system uh, underwhelmed, reopen stores in a responsible way, and then, you know, head into an okay holiday season. You know, we didn't anticipate it to be great, but at least it was, there was some measured optimism. And, you know, candidly, three and a half months later, uh, there's as much uncertainty in at least the retail space uh, as there was three and a half months ago. And, you know, we, we reopened, states reopened. Uh, we had, you know, this continued surge. There was never any sort of plateau and then a resurgence in the winter the way uh the way fred had you know talked about as a hypothesis and um and so now i think we are working I think we're all working toward a timeline tied to a vaccine not tied to getting this under control so you know what we've seen now are some real winners and losers you know in the retail space and the losers we read about every day with the tremendous amount of bankruptcies and the you know, generally it's the apparel guys, you know, unfortunately, Brooks Brothers, J. Crew, and others, apartment stores are struggling, and there's been three major apartment store bankruptcies, you know, and then just a, just a mixture of the hard good guys, TNC, Pier One, um, you know, Tuesday morning, uh, a lot of them companies that are based here in, in Dallas, and that doesn't take into account the number of small businesses, you know, the single unit retailers, restaurant tours uh, that will not reopen. You know, you see some numbers that, you know, up to 25% of those uh, won't reopen. And, um, and those, those retailers make up a large part, significant part of revenue, significant part of jobs. And so, you know, there's, there's going to be some sort of permanent change here. 
Now we've had winners, right? The, the winners, those, those guys that we read about who have done a great job of combining bricks and, and, and mortar with e-commerce, the Amazons, Walmarts, Costco's of the world. The essential retailers continue to do really well. You know, the grocers, the drugstores, um, you know, needs-based products. And then what, we, what we've seen in retail is a real trend to the consumer who wants to stay at or near their house. And so when you look at the retailers that are doing well, Home Depot, Lowe's, uh, furniture retailers that sell home office furniture, patio furniture, um, you know, we've seen from some of our fine jewelry retailers strong numbers since they've reopened because people are still going to get married. They're just going to do it in a different way. And, um, and so what we're seeing is the stronger getting stronger. And the weaker retailers have had their demise accelerated by this pandemic and are being, you know, truly devastated. What we're seeing on the retail side is an industry that's really being reshaped. And, and that's been accelerated, not caused by COVID necessarily, but accelerated by, by the pandemic. On the real estate side, what we're seeing is that cooperation that was so strong early on is starting to lessen. You know, that, um, you know, the PPP money's running out. You know, it was generally for a three-month, four-month period. Uh, we're seeing landlords push tenants harder with defaults, with lockouts. And we're seeing banks starting to push back on forbearance. So, you know, the, um, <clears throat> the, the current situation is, you know, frankly, from, from our perspective, really not any better today and, and Ray can attest on the restaurant side as well as anybody than it was three months ago. And one of the most important things we're seeing is the long-term changes that retailers and restaurants are having to do really to, to succeed, not just short-term, but long-term. I mean, retailers have to have now a seamless operation on both the store side, and the uh, and the e-commerce side and omni-channel it, it's it's interesting pre-pandemic a customer would look at going into a store and buying online as two different means to shop and i think now what we're seeing is you know the customer um you know views it as one integrated way to shop and that means that retailers are going to have to be spot on not only with their e-commerce piece but with their supply chain with their logistics, they've got to be able to not only be able to order online, but to get the goods to the to the customer. When the customer comes into a store to return it, to change that out, and um, and and that's I think going to be a long term change. Something else that we think long term in the retail space is the customer has to feel safe going into a store or a restaurant. And again, you know. I see Ray on the screen, he, he can attest to that as well. So masks, shields, sanitizers, um, social distancing, all that's gotta be factored in, not just for the short term, but we believe for the long term. And, and that will change the way stores are designed, um, both as to pickup service, internet pickup and returns, and, you know, I saw something interesting. Um, I saw a redesign of Shake Shack. I don't know if you guys saw that. Shake Shack, Shake Shack is redesigning their store, very cool, with three drive-through um, aisles 
and one is just for app pickup. Order on the app, you drive through and you pick it up through that one specialized window. One is for traditional drive through and one is for sort of customer, uh, some type of customer pickup. And so I think you're gonna start seeing stores get redesigned in a more efficient way. And on the landlord side, you know, what we're seeing is that landlords have to work with their tenants more. There's more interaction between landlords and tenants today uh, in light of what will undoubtedly be post-pandemic um, restraints. And so traffic's going to be down. People are not going to want to, you know, gather in a store. Traffic will be down, and that means conversion has to go up in order for the retail retailer to, to uh, capture its sales. And so landlords are now going to work with tenants to design their centers or redesign their centers to make sure the customer has a great experience when they're shopping. And so, you know, we all sort of take all of this information from really all across the country, not just Texas and Dallas. And we sort of say, okay, how does that impact us as a company? And, you know, I think first and foremost, we're, we're playing for the long term. I think it is early that, um, to see any opportunities on the retail real estate side. You know, how do you price it? How do you, how do you, how do you underwrite a center when you've got, you know, retailers who will continue to be at risk? And so, you know, we're just, we're in the process of getting ready. You know, we're working with our retail clients, we're working with our equity partners. Uh, we're working with a number of you guys on, on this call to make sure that, from a timing standpoint, which we believe will be first or second quarter next year, uh, you know, we will see opportunities that we will want to pursue. But we also know that we have to get through the short term in order to get to the long term. And so, you know, just a couple of a couple of quick data points. You know, for the portfolio of retail properties we own, uh, we see material improvement in rent collections. You know, if you look at April for for our, I don't know how many two, two and a half million square feet that we own of, of various sizes and, and types. April, we collected 46% of rents. May, we collected 49% of rents. June, it was almost 70% of rents. In July, it was 82%. So we're starting to see that improvement. Now, you know, I'll, I'll add the caveat that PPP money is, is running out. And so, I can't predict the future. I hope the trend continues or at least stabilizes. And on the services side, you know, we know that retailers are not generally opening new stores unless you're an essential retailer or one of, one of those in that special category. And so we've started generating revenue in ways that we've never had to do before. We've had clients hire us to, to represent them for their rent relief program. We've had uh, you know, clients want us to help them look at their current portfolio and terminate leases that aren't working and, um, you know, extend leases, renew leases for the stores they want to keep, but maybe at a lower rate. Uh, we're doing build the suits for, for those tenants that are, that are growing and we're talking to, you know, some of our big uh, retailers who own their real estate about how to, how to monetize their excess land. So, you know, bottom line is still a lot of uncertainty, so we're scrambling. You know, I describe this as the baton death march uh, <laughs> in the retail space. Is it's every day? It's a it's a battle, but um, and and we think that some strategy change as we continue to work our way out of this, and then hopefully, 
in our next retail update, you know, there'll be some more visibility, but uh, at least that's what we're seeing. So question, you talked about um, like Shake Shack changing their stores up. If, if you've got a retailer that's, that's getting smoked, that wants to change the, their store to adapt to post COVID life, and you've got a landlord that's getting smoked because they're not getting rent, where does the money come for these changes? I mean, there, that's gotta be like, yeah, I, I think that's, I mean, that's brutal there. It, it is brutal. And I think that, um, look, for the most part, existing stores are going to be difficult to, to modify, right? Because you don't have the capital. You may not have the actual ability to do it from the space perspective. I think we're talking really new stores. And Got so it. once we get for relocated stores, I think those are the ones that will likely be impacted the most from a design change. I think stores will get smaller and, I, and they'll have areas, you know, perfected curbside pickup and areas where you can return things you've ordered on the internet, return them at the stores. I think stores can scramble a little bit and sort of makeshift, make changes, but I don't think that it's gonna be hard to change a chain of existing, of existing stores to, uh, to adapt. <laughs> Hey, let me follow up on a couple things that he said, and that was a great presentation. But, um, you know, from the I have the same type Zoom call with a bunch of the restaurant guys in town. Actually, we had it yesterday. And this is what's at everyone's PPP money is out. So if you haven't stabilized your <clears throat> restaurant at about 70 to 80 percent of pre pandemic sales as of August 1st, you're done because there's no additional money to come out. And You've already seen restaurants like Dakota's go under, uh, California Kitchen goes bankrupt, Matchbox, Walnut Hill, and Central just went bankrupt. If you haven't gotten back up to that level, <clears throat> there's no way you're going to get there without some additional government money. <clears throat> A couple of things that are killing our margins, packaging, we've all gone from around 10% to go to 40%. That has hit us for 2 to 3%. And we're working on a 12% margin. That pulls just sanitation. We're spending a hundred thousand a month on masks and sanitation um, things for our employees and to keep the restaurants clean. Well, that's about a uh, hit there. So those things are killing us on, on that end. And the last thing is, I we're out actually playing offense and looking for locations. And I've had a number of very high-profile spots come to me, um, and the landlords are still asking 50, 60 bucks a foot in rent. And that just, that's just not the world we're in today. And I think for the next six, nine months, maybe a year, the only restaurant deals you're going to see get done are going to be percentage rent-only deals, in my estimation. And they're going to be – and I'll give you an example. The porch, which closed on Henderson, I've been trying to do a deal with Mark Center, and it's – no secret, all you guys in the restaurant, but he's trying to stick at $50 a foot. I'm like, how do I invest seven, $800,000 on cleaning uh, space up and redoing it? And then this pandemic comes back in the spring or next year. And so as we have conversations with people, it's like, we'll look at your space. We're doing percentage rent only, non-recourse leases. And that's kind of the way the restaurant business is going to be for the next year. But if, but I will say, if you have any tenants that haven't gotten back up the pre-pandemic of at least 70%, I 
they're going to be knocking on your door this month and next month. And it's, it's, it's game up because they have just no money to pay. Is that doom and gloom enough? And I think, Ray, I think you're right on. Um, you know, we are landlords and, you know, we talked to our equity partners about the fact that you can't view value pre-pandemic. And, um, and there are going to be percentage only rent uh, deals done and, um, and rents are going to go down. And, you know, it, it, there, there is a bit of a disconnect currently um, between owners, landlords and tenants in that respect. But I think that's got to change. Otherwise, the space will, will end up sitting empty. Yeah. Well, one last example, Holland Park Village, we've got chairs and tables all out in the parking lot. We're back up to 100% of what we were last year. I mean, we're actually comped up a little bit because people are staying later and I've got a lot more seats outside. My store in the Galleria that's on the ice rink, we're at 20% of pre-pandemic, 20%. The only reason I don't shut that is, I mean, it's, you know, hopefully it comes back, but who's going to a mall shopping and then eating it's just not happening and so we have a store in sundance square it's at 40 percent of pre-pandemic because it's in an office location so your urban restaurants that depend on the expense account crowd that depend on that business lunch business I, how does that come back hey, anytime ray? soon hey ray buildings yeah ray if, if you're having an issue uh with your mikasina over at highland park village i've heard that landlord's a bastard i'm available to help broker for you with that landlord <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. To help so, that deal out. <laughs> the landlord in the Highland park village is giving them all the parking they need to take the <laughs> <laughs> like they, they take another space about every night keep growing but yeah, that's great until it rains how about when the cool weather comes back in october november i mean that's that's a killer. I, I will say, I think the outdoor seating, like at Bistro 31 and a lot of restaurants all over town are doing it. I think it's created a great village. I mean, a uh, European type feel to walking around and having people outside. And I think that's a trend that people are actually, everyone used to think it was so hot in the summer. As long as you're in the shade and you have a breeze, it's not bad. It's not and bad. I agree. It kind of took that to force everybody out. But I will say the Galleria, North Park, all the ones that have, shopping as part of their experience level there it's it's donezo for a while and you're gonna have to go to percentage rent only so my question on the percentage rent thing if 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 you want a percentage rent for a location you like i'm asking alan and ray this would you be doing willing to do a short-term lease uh for percentage rent till you get through covid and then working something out on the other side or do you want a long-term percentage rent deal so what's your definition of the other side? Well, when, you know, when, if and when everything goes back to normal, if it does. But I mean, because um, to me, like I've got office tenants wanting short-term deals and I'm doing them because I, I think I'm going to be able to extend them in a better market than I'm in today. So I'm okay with the short-term lease. Keep them in there. Don't make me retenant the space. I'll deal with it later. But if, so if I, I, I kind of think if I owned retail and I had a quality operator wanting to backfill a, uh, an, uh, a, a restaurant space, I'd do a percentage deal, but I would want to do it for a window so I could see what kind of revenue that's going to create for me. Yeah. Think, is that, are you willing to do that? Yeah. Are they, well, the problem is I, to get up, you know, we make all our money in that last 10 to 12% of sales. So if you can't lift yourself back up above 70, 80% of where you were before, 
you're just losing money every day opening the door as a restaurant. And so, you, you know, so if you're talking to me and you, you've got a, uh, I'm a one-off operator, the, the guys are going to get crunched are the guys that own one to three or four restaurants. If the only restaurant I own and was a Mikasina in the Galleria, I'd be closed and bankrupt. But I can spread it out over 29 restaurants, okay? So it's going to get to the point to where people are saying, I can't lift up. How do I can? So the landlord might actually have to supplement and actually write him a check if you want that particular amenity in your building. Like, I can't imagine having Capitol Grill at the Crescent or Del Frisco's. They just got to be getting crushed. I think there's a, I think there's a, from a landlord's perspective, there's a little bit of a, of a compromise here. You know, what we would look at for a restaurateur retailer that needed to go on percentage rent is um, something that got us obviously all the triple nets back plus a little, and we'd want to see sales. And then we would enter into a, um, probably not a long-term lease, but a lease that had, uh, sort of look backs. And so, you know, you look back after, after a two year period, you see what the environment's like. And if you can convert to a base rent, uh, with maybe an unnatural break on the, um, you know, on the percentage rent, there are ways to work with the tenant. And that's what I meant when I said that there's probably more collaboration today, uh, among landlords, tenants, owners, uh, than there's certainly been in the past. At least that's what we're seeing because tenants are willing to share more information and at least we as landlords are willing to be more cooperative once we have enough information to, to, uh, to negotiate a deal. Yeah. And so nobody wants to see a, a, a restaurant tour, an entrepreneur go out of business. Nobody wants to have a dark space. And so, you know, people are just getting creative in, in deal structure. And I, I think that's a necessity in this environment. Any other comments? All right, we got one minute, so I always like getting a minute back in my life. I thank you so much for everybody's participation. Alan, great presentation. Uh, Ray, I appreciate your feedback. Thank you, guys. Uh, I think next call, maybe we can all meet Craig and Lucy wherever they are. We can all just get together instead of having to do this Zoom call. Because I think I have an idea where, that, uh, uh, even though you got your blinds down, you're, you're someplace special. <laughs> Everybody have a great day. Thank you for your participation. That's all for today. I'd like to thank our guests, Dr. Fred Cerise of Parkland Hospital, as well as Andrew Levy of JLL, Alan Shore of The Retail Connection, and Ray Washburn of Charter Holdings for joining us. Remember to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app if you haven't already, and follow Trek on social media. Once again, I'm Bill San Antonio. Thanks for listening.